This is Bible Chat. Hey guys, and welcome back to Bible Chat. I'm your host, Caleb Sowers, and uh, I'm really glad to be able to find time to do that, uh, do this this week. Um, I was looking at my schedule, and it honestly seemed like it was going to be another week where I wasn't going to find the time to record an episode, but uh, I guess I did. Uh, I just want to take the time again to thank you guys. We're up over 100 likes on the Facebook page now, and... Um, got a lot of new listeners lately and you know that's just great i um i was never sure exactly how this was going to go and and what how big the audience might get or if i was even going to get an audience and obviously uh you know some people are being blessed by the show and that's the whole point isn't it so i'm just i'm just really grateful and i hope that you guys continue to to tune in listen and um and enjoy the show. Um, still looking for some feedback from you guys. Uh, I'm I've got plenty of stuff to go through, and apparently it's meeting the need. Uh, guys are you guys are listening? So I guess maybe our interests are similar, but I would still really like to hear back from you guys, get some ideas, and and go from there. But anyway, uh, all of that aside, had. Um, this episode, we're going to take a look at my, one of my favorite characters in the Bible. I absolutely love the story of Gideon, um, especially in the early part of the story. I relate to him so much. Um, but uh, I want to take a unique look at this, I think. Um, and we're going to start with a familiar passage. Uh, and I think that, honestly, this passage may make some of you irritated. Um, but that's okay. <laughs> I guess. Um, You know that it's October, and you know that we're getting close to Halloween, because all the Christmas decorations are already up at Walmart. Uh, uh, Katie is my wife, and we were shopping uh, not that long ago, and I remember um, just looking down the aisle, and look, all the Christmas tree decorations are up, all the Christmas decorations are already being sold, and it's not even Thanksgiving, it's not even Halloween yet, and we're already looking at Christmas stuff, but I hate to admit it, I, I was watching a movie the other day, and they had a little bit of Christmas music in it, and you know what? I'm kind of in the mood for it. I I hate saying that it's so early, but with that being said, let's look at a very familiar passage that gets a lot of reading at Christmas time. If you have your Bible, if you're following along, open up to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. We're going to start reading in verse 2. 
The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. You know, I I really like the way that this passage is structured. This passage is structured, structured in a very unique way. Actually, what's pretty cool is if you read each verse, two through five, you can complete the statement of that verse with verse six. For example, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Or, go to verse 4, or 3, either one. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod of their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be upon his shoulders. When I read through this and saw the way that the passage is structured, I got to verse 5, which I just read, where it mentions the defeat of Midian. It made me think, what does the defeat of Midian have to do with Jesus? This is a prophecy. This is something where the author, or Isaiah, is referring to things that would be familiar uh, to the people of Israel, and then pointing forward. Everything we've gone through, it's going to be okay, guys, because we have something to look forward to. And so in verse 5, he refers, uh, or verse 4, I'm sorry, he refers to the battle of Midian. And then he says, look, just like what happened at the battle of Midian, it's going to happen to our enemies because... A child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. We know, obviously, today that that's referring to Jesus. This gets read all the time. It's what gets quoted in the Charlie Brown movie. <laughs> all of these prophecies about the Messiah are familiar to us because we're after Jesus has come, but these were being pointed forward. And so he's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about Jesus. And what does Midian have to do with Jesus? Well, let's find out. Again, if you're following along, go ahead and turn to the book of Judges. And we're going to look first in chapter 6. But we're going to be doing a lot of flipping around, actually, in this story. See, in the 6th and 7th chapters of the book of Judges, we find the story of Gideon. 
Gideon is, like I said, absolutely one of my favorite people in the Bible. I've always found him incredibly relatable because Gideon, he was, he was a nobody. He was a farmer who was hiding in his, hiding his wheat crop from the Midianites who had conquered Israel. He was hiding behind a wine press while threshing wheat when the angel of the Lord came to him and said one of the most ironic statements in the Bible. This little guy hiding. He says, Arise, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. And I absolutely love that. I mean, in my mind's eye, I can see this skinny guy check over both of his shoulders to see who's the angel talking to. Are you talking to me? No. And that's what I find so relatable, though. Gideon is called to do something that he is not at all capable of fulfilling. He isn't strong enough. He's no warlord. He's not a leader. He's just a farmer, or in his own words, he's the youngest child in the weakest tribe in Israel. He wasn't prepared to take the reins of commanding an army. He was just leading a simple life, trying to exist from day to day as long as God provided him the means to do so. He just went about his daily routine, plowing, planting, harvesting, and never once thought of becoming a deliverer of his people. In his own eyes, he's less than nothing. He has no power within himself, no knowledge of warfare, tactics, no education in the use of weaponry, no ability to lead men into battle. He's just a normal guy. But God saw something in this man, Gideon, that no one else could see. God saw that Gideon was nothing in his own eyes as well as the eyes of other men. Gideon was the least likely of all of his brethren, since even he said he was the least among his tribe, the tribe of Manasseh, and that his family was poor even among that poor tribe. I mean, thinking of the beginning of Gideon makes me remember what Paul said in Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 26 to 29. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. God's view of who is useful to his kingdom is so different from our own. His view of our world is completely upside down from ours. And we look at people who have talent. We look for those who are influential. You know, great speakers, people who are very educated. And just like everybody else, we're really drawn to that that celebrity. And, and, and it's become a problem. We somehow think that their appearance or ability will draw or bring down the Spirit of God in a special way. But throughout the Bible, we see, you know, the nobodies, the losers, and that's who God used to accomplish what he needed done. And that's what we get with Gideon. 
you know, I accidentally told you guys Judges 6, but we're actually going to pick up in Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7 and verse 15. And we'll probably, yeah, we'll read down to verse 23. So God has already convinced Gideon to start leading the army of Israel. He's gathered an army and then God went through whole period of processes to, to chop this army down smaller and smaller and prepare them for the upcoming battle with Midian. And so in verse 15, when Gideon heard the account of the dream, oh, you know what? Let's read the dream. So actually we'll start in verse 12. So Gideon has caught up with the army of Midian and they're camped outside. And uh, God has told him, you're going to attack. But if you doubt, or if you're afraid, go down and listen to what they say. And you'll be encouraged to attack the camp. So he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the troops who were in the camp. Now the Midianites, Amalekites, and the Ketamites had settled down in the valley like a swarm of locusts, and their camels were as innumerable as the sand of the seashore. When Gideon arrived, there was a man telling his friend about a dream. He said, listen, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp, struck a tent, and it fell. The loaf turned the tent upside down so that it collapsed. And his friend answered, there is nothing, this is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite. God has handed the entire Midianite camp over to him. Now in verse 15, when Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. He returned to Israel's camp and said, get up, for the Lord has handed the Midianite camp over to you. Then he divided the 300 men into three companies and gave each of the men a trumpet in one hand and an empty pitcher with a torch inside it in the other hand. Watch me, he said to them, and do what I do. When I come to the outpost of the camp, do as I do. When I and everyone with me blow our trumpets, you are also to blow your trumpet all around the camp. Then you will say, for the Lord and for Gideon, Gideon and the hundred men who were with him went to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch after the sentries had been stationed. They blew their trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. The three companies blew their trumpets and shattered their pitchers. They held their torches in their left hands, their trumpets in their right hands, and shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon, each, each Israelite took his position around the camp, and the entire Midianite army began to run, and they cried out as they fled. When Gideon's men blew their three hundred trumpets, the Lord caused the men in the whole army to turn on each other with their swords. They fled to Akasia house in the direction of Zerara, as far as the border of Abel-Mehola near Tabath. Then the men of Israel were called from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh, and they pursued the Midianites. 
Sorry for the one mess up. I don't know how you pronounce two R's in a row like that. <laughs> but anyway. See, Gideon is convinced that God has truly called him to lead the land of Israel to freedom. It just takes a while. I mean, just like so many of us, at first Gideon wasn't able to wrap his head around what God wanted him to do. He just couldn't see what God saw. But eventually, he gathers an army. And most of us know the story. So I won't go that much into it, but God slowly whittles Gideon's army down from 32,000 to 300. <laughs> Chapter 8 in Judges tells us that the army of Midian was at least 135,000 strong. And can you imagine that? God was asking Gideon to lead 300 untrained men against an army numbering over 135,000. And these were well-trained, well-armed troops. But here's the thing. God had a plan. Gideon's army of 300 men was divided, and every man was given a trumpet. Then Gideon took those 300 men with a trumpet in one hand and handed them an empty pitcher made of clay for the other hand. Inside this pitcher, he placed a lamp or a torch. And Gideon's orders were simple, but absolutely important. No one was to make a move without his direct orders. Their success was fully dependent upon obedience to God's commands to Gideon and relied upon the element of surprise. The 300 were told that when they surrounded the camp of the Midianites, they would blow their trumpets, smash their clay jars, and shout, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And you know, every time I read this, I have to stop and wonder about Gideon here. This man, who doubted himself so much, even going into this battle, had enough faith to brag about a sword that he didn't even have. He was marching to a battle that he literally could not fight because he was carrying a jar in one hand and a trumpet in the other. So what sword is he talking about? Right. Sunday school answer. He knew he was talking about God's sword. This was God's battle and God's victory. He wanted God to receive the glory for this miraculous victory. Gideon's name was added to it almost as an afterthought for the sake of those in the camp of the Midianites who had heard his name and feared his power under God. See, in verses 13 and 14, the Midianites had been talking about a dream that God had given to them. In that dream, a barley cake rolls down the hill and destroys the Midianites' tent. And the Midianites, being superstitious, immediately interpreted that dream to mean that the small army of Gideon was going to utterly destroy them. So when Gideon's name was called, panic struck the camp, and, and they thought the dream was coming true. God's plan for battle was aided by the fact that God also knows and controls the actions of the enemy. 
They couldn't stand against his power. Still, everything considered, this plan really sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? I mean, it's a bunch of farmers with clay jars and trumpets, and they surround an army that outnumbers them almost 500 to 1. Then they blow their trumpets, smash some jars, and yell. Great. I mean, in my mind, now the enemy's awake. It doesn't sound good. <laughs> now they're up. They know you're there. But here's the thing. 300 men blowing a trumpet all at once would be a signal to the enemy that there's a lot more with each one of those trumpets. I mean, just like in the Civil War, the trumpets in the ancient warfare were used to signal the attack of a larger body. In the Civil War, all the attacks were directed by bugle calls, and even in ancient warfare, they would use the sounds of trumpets and bugles to direct an army. And so for every one of those, there was a bunch more men. So they were used during the fight to give signals. And so the Midianites would think that there were at least 300 companies of soldiers bearing down upon them, not just 300 trumpets, 300 men. After the trumpet blast, each one of the Israelites would strike their pitchers against another one, causing a loud sound, and this light from inside would suddenly burst forth, and they would light the path to the enemy's camp and confuse the Midianites. The enemies also knew that not every soldier carried a torch. Only a few would light the way, while most would follow with their weapons drawn. So 300 torches or lamps would mean countless other soldiers. And the Bible explains what happened next. Between the dream of impending doom, the trumpets signaling an army bearing down on them, and the lights of so many torches, they broke. They ran. And they were in such a rush to get away that they cut down anyone in their path, including their allies. Gideon won the battle, even though they didn't have weapons drawn. But again, you know, what does all this really matter? What do broken jars, trumpets, dreams of giant Danish, what do these have to do with Jesus? Well, just like with Gideon, God has given each of us a trumpet that we must sound also. All around us, we see society turning. Entertainment, education, politics, even the church is becoming more and more wicked. It's obvious who holds sway and we we know that we're outnumbered. But we forget that we have him surrounded. We have the devil. We have evil surrounded. And we're on the offense. Each one of us can shout forth. Each one of us can use our instrument, our talent, our time to sound the alarm. Every person who is truly a Christian is anointed and has the power of the Holy Ghost, and we each one can call down the armies of heaven to defeat our enemy. 
You know, the devil's greatest fear is prayer. It's the prayer that God's people pray because he knows that God hears us and can answer prayer. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 says, For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. The weapons of our warfare are God's weapons, and they're spiritual in nature. And against them, evil has no defense. We have the word of the Lord. And the Bible says that it's sharper than a two-edged sword, and it can cut the devil's devices and condemn his power to a point of ineffectiveness. We have the sword of the Spirit, the power of God within us, and the anointing of the Holy Ghost, and the devil cannot stand against that. We have the shield of faith to stop every fiery bullet that Satan can cast at us. Isaiah 54, 17 says, No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, says the Lord. But still, we see the world moving away from the church and the things of God. Even in our churches, people are slipping further and further into the world. Entire denominations are openly embracing sin and becoming nothing less than a place for entertainment on Sunday. How? How is this happening? Well, consider what might have happened if Gideon did everything that God had commanded, but still had not surrendered to God's will. What if Gideon was like, so many of us, you know, we come to every service, maybe we tithe, you know, a lot of people may be teachers, some may even be pastors, but inside, they're still holding back. There are things that God is asking from us that we're not giving to him. And that is why we don't see victory in our lives. God chooses to use those who are totally surrendered to him. God chooses to use those who are less than nothing in their own sight. He chooses to use those who know that it is not by their might, not by their power, not by their talent, but by the Spirit of God that the victory will come. See, Gideon gave the men clay jars, and each one had a torch inside. Second Corinthians 4, 7 says, Now we have this treasure in clay jars, so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. See, we're those clay jars, or the way that the KJV translates it, earthen vessels. We are those earthen vessels. And inside each of us, God has placed his light. It's the light of the gospel. God's conviction breaks our hard heart. It crushes and destroys that shell of the flesh. 
and it makes us into a broken vessel that he can use for his glory. And after all the power of the flesh has been broken, his light bursts forth from inside so that all the world can see how our lives become a bright light in a sin-darkened world. And that's if we're sanctified. And then everywhere we go, we cast that light. And wherever that light shines forth, the darkness has to flee. Satan lives in the darkness of sin and the light that shines from within us, emanating from the power of God, causes him to cringe and run. And that's why we have to be surrendered. That's why all we have to do if we are broken and we are bowed and we are surrendered to God, all we have to do is resist the devil and he'll flee. See, our victory in working for the Lord is completely dependent upon obedience to God. If, if you want your church to grow, if you want your family members and your friends to be saved, everything has to be done under the direction of God. If we're going to accomplish anything, it has to be done God's way. We have to be prayed up in tune with the Spirit, and, and we have to move when He tells us to move. See, our plan will fail. Gideon's plan would fail. But God's won't. Just like Gideon knew, there is no way he could lead just 300 men against 135,000. We need to realize that we cannot turn back the tide of sin and darkness in this world on our own. It doesn't matter what program your church runs, what outreach you have. It doesn't matter if you have a concert. It doesn't matter if you have a special service or a revival service. None of that's going to change this world. It's not. It has to be through the power of God. It happens with those who love Jesus and live their lives under the anointing and direction of the Holy Spirit. So many churches, so many denominations are filled with tremendous revivals where thousands are saved, healed, and delivered by the power of God. I mean, there are still men and women of God who move and minister under the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the power of hell knows who they are. But it's all done with them being surrendered first. When the trumpets were blown and the jars were smashed and the light spilled forth, the people shouted Gideon's name. And it reminds me of when the seven sons of Sceva attempted to cast out devils without the anointing of the Holy Ghost. You guys remember that? It's in Acts chapter 19. It's a short story, but more or less the seven sons of Sceva attempt to cast out a demon by saying, I command you by Jesus, who Paul preaches. And the demon responds saying, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? And it doesn't go well for those guys. See, the demon knew Paul, not because Paul was so great, because, but because he knew the anointing of the Holy Spirit that rested on Paul. And he knew that Paul was surrendered to God. It was God that they were afraid of.
your name, my name, or the name of any other person doesn't mean a thing by itself. But when you carry that anointing with you, when you speak God's will and God's word in God's way, then everything else will fall into place. God has placed his burning, glowing light of the gospel in these earthen vessels, these clay jars. He has, you have a trumpet in your hand to preach the message of salvation, and he has given you the sword of the Lord through the word of God. And it's time to break the vessels of clay. It's time to surrender to God. It's time to let God use us to strike fear into the powers of darkness. It's time to let God use us to turn back all the sin in the world, all the sin that's creeping into the church, all the sin that's made its way into Christianity. It's time to take back ground for God. And the only way to do that is to surrender. Jeremiah 20, verse 11 says, But the Lord is with me as a violent warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. Since they have not succeeded, they will be utterly shamed and everlasting humiliation that will never be forgotten. God delights in delivering his children. He is our strong and mighty tower. He is our fortress and our refuge. The battle is his, not ours. We're on the winning side. Whatever God has called you to, whatever he is asking for, it doesn't matter where you have been, what you have done, who you have been. He has something special for you if you will only obey. He has a mission and a calling placed on your life. And he gives us what we need to carry it out. John Wesley, the, the father of the Method, Methodist denomination, wrote, Among the many difficulties of our early ministry, my brother Charles often said, If the Lord would give me wings, I'd fly. And I used to answer, If God bids me fly, I will trust him for the wings. We only need to trust God for what he has planned. Well, that'll do it for this episode. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, if you, uh, if you did, let me know. Um, if you, if you, if you enjoyed it, you know, please share the podcast with your friends or with other people who might enjoy it. Um, we're kind of slowing down on the growing, so got to get more shares out there, guys. Um, also, if you enjoyed it and you would like to follow the Facebook page, you can find us on Facebook at just Bible Chat. Um, I'm still looking for you guys to reach out to me to give me uh, ideas for future episodes, idea, uh, anything that you guys want to learn about, uh, anything that interests you curiosities, anything like that, please don't hesitate. You can get a hold of me on Facebook at Bible Chat, or you can shoot me an email at BibleChatPodcast84 at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Patreon at Bible Chat Podcast. 
Um, you can reach out to me on any of those three platforms, and I'll be looking forward to hearing from you. Um, hopefully I'll be able to upload another episode next week, but if not, just hang in there, guys. I'm almost done with this class, and things may slow down a little bit, and I'll be able to get back on the weekly schedule, but let's just plan for next week. So anyway, hope you guys have a great day. Hope you enjoy the show. Um, you know, like the show, share it on Facebook, uh, please, uh, just get the word out there and, uh, and, and hopefully I'll get some feedback from you guys. Um, I hope you have a great day and God bless you and, uh, see you back here. This is the Bible chat podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Sowers. Thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you.